Hi friends, it's Puno, Uno with a P, and you are listening to Girlboss Radio. So last episode, we talked to Vanessa Acosta from Wasi Clothing about starting a business during the pandemic using TikTok. By the way, thank you so much to everyone who wrote us. Those TikTok tips were all Vanessa. No credit over here. So while Vanessa's business was thriving during the pandemic after getting furloughed, many of us had to learn how to survive. I feel like everybody's been asking each other, how are you dealing with it? What's your strategy? Tell me what your strategy is. We're all just grasping. Any tip? Is it turmeric latte? No, I wish. <laughs> we wanted to find someone that has gone through the ringer. We found Isabel Cosart. She's an immigrant who started one of the oldest tourism companies in New Orleans. She's also a farmer and owns an orchard. As we were digging into her story, we were just like, whoa. She has gone through Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, being a breast cancer survivor, a really shitty divorce. Spoiler alert, her ex still lives behind her property, by the way. And we wanted to know, how does someone go through all of this pain and still have the energy, optimism, and passion to keep moving forward? She has had to make so many changes in order to survive. Throughout everything, she's just remained resilient and flexible, like the cypress trees that are on her property. You'll be hearing a lot of cypress tree sounds in the background. This episode is packed with surprises, from having a baby during Katrina to some Connie Chung tea and some frogs. Let's just get into it. Sorry, my frogs are never silent. They're so beautiful. We have thousands of frogs. And they know when it's sunset. It's like that minute where the sun is down, but it's still, like we say in French, entre chien et loup, between dog and wolf. Not exactly night, not exactly day. It's crepuscule, you know, dusk. And at that precise moment, all the frogs start singing. And it's like deafening. It's so loud. It's like we're in the middle of the jungle. I mean, this is the original growth forest, you know? I love it. Yeah, it's a privilege to live here. It really is. So you originally grew up in France, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. And then how did you land in New Orleans? Well, I was in my second year of college and I had 11 credits. I needed my 12th one, which was English translation. And I, I was bad in English. My parents said, well, try to find a thing, you know, to go abroad and get your English better. Then you could finally graduate from college. I was 20, so I applied to Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and I did uh, one year as an assistant to the foreign language department. So that that was my introduction to America. (laughs) I still have a cafeteria tray. Don't tell them. It's the tray we used to slide down the hill from on the snow, you know? Oh, I love that. (laughs) I was engaged to a Frenchman, an engineer. I had a big diamond ring. And then after one year in Maine, uh, I thought he had become very boring. So I gave him back his ring when I went home and just decided I had to go back to America because everybody said you can't judge the states on Maine. You have to have another experience to know what America is. So I started applying for another visa. I obtained one through Codafil to teach French in the public school in Louisiana for one year. And it was like, you'd get a $200 stipend a month. 200 a month. Yeah, and my rent was 250. Wow. Once I did find finally an efficiency, I did my year teaching 
elementary kids in a very poor, really underprivileged neighborhood downtown New Orleans. I learned a lot, but the kids, as hard as I tried, they didn't learn very much because they needed everything but French, you know, but mm. I tried. And so how did you get into tourism? Well, I was always trying to find ways to get a earn a little income somewhere, but without a green card, it's not easy. So I replaced a girlfriend of mine who was giving a tour on big bus, and she was sick, and it was a French group. I said, I don't know anything about what to say. She said, oh, just make it up. They don't know. They're not from here. Whatever. You know, just, just make it up. I'm like, <laughs> so I went to the public library on Loyola, and there was no internet. And so kind of studied some history books to have something decent to tell these people, you know. And so when I stepped on the bus and they gave me the microphone, I started explaining what I had learned. So I saw the things they were doing wrong, you know, and the big, large vehicle size prohibited us from going under the big oak trees in the pretty neighborhoods like uptown, the Garden District, the French Quarter, you couldn't turn the corners. So I figured, well, why don't we do it in a smaller vehicle, charge more? Why not? I had a car so I could start taking three people and one next to me, but only in French. My English wasn't good enough. So I would pull up at the back door of hotels because I didn't have all the right permits and everything like you're supposed to. And then after a while, the concierge, she said, why don't you do it in English? And I said, you think? I said, yeah, they'll think your accent is great. No worries, you know. I'll send you some business if you do private tours like that. So I started doing it in English and it worked. People liked it. And so that's how I got into tourism. It was sort of by chance. But you also had a little bit of a vision of how you wanted to do your company. I just saw all the things that other people were doing it wrong, quantity Mm. versus quality. And I just thought there was a niche. Nobody was doing that. Charge a little more, give people a lot more. And then at this point, you're completely doing your tours full time. Right. And not teaching. Well, with all the babies, I had a baby a year. So in between, (laughs) I remember picking up the tourists, you know, with my big stomach because I had real big babies every time. And so the client I would pick up said, you the driver? Yeah, I could back up from the steering wheel, you know, to his room. (laughs) And like, you going to be okay? I'm like, I'm fine. My babies never come early. So what was one of the biggest challenges about running your own business when you were starting out? It took 10 years to get my status as a citizen, you know, five years to get my green cards and that's with an attorney. So that was really hard. And then later on the permitting for, you know, all the different city permits you need. It's like they put roadblocks, you know, and all I tried to do is give business to people and give jobs. So the red tape really was the most difficult part. How did you figure it out? Was it just charming the people? (laughs) Yeah, you just smile, but you insist. You don't give up. And I mean, if you empower other people and tell them, please help me, I need your advice, people will, wow, you know, I can can give advice to this person down there, you know? When did you learn that? Looking at my mom. (laughs) Yeah. You know? My mom's amazing. She's she's 90. She's in France. She was B.O., which is how we say organic, 
before the word was invented. She always made all of our baby food, made all of our clothes. She taught me how much women can do, and she, she's still my role model, mm. you know. I, I feel like with tourism, you're always working in unpredictable situations. Oh, sure. When you were taking care of your kids, was that all on you? Did you have help? Well, my husband was an alcoholic, so it was kind of a lot on me. So uh, I had wonderful uh, help from uh, a lady from Cuba that I could bring the babies to. I tried to do mostly half-day tours because I'd have to run home and nurse the baby. She would call me, he's crying, hurry up. And I'm like, just please don't feed him. Just don't give him a bottle. I'm coming. I have so much milk. Please just not hold on. And so she'd walk outside, hold the baby until I got there so I could nurse the baby quick, quick, and then go back to work, you know. So wow. that way I was able to nurse them till they were two, all of them. All of them. How many babies? Four. Four babies. Four in five years, yeah. I got 13 grandkids now. Dang, that is a proper lineage. <laughs> I was going to ask you, when did you feel like you hit a groove with your tourism company? Oh, 2018 was the best year. Oh. It was amazing. I did over $2.3 million in sales. It was Go, an amazing girl. year. I think because it was the tricentennial of Louisiana. So that brought a lot of publicity to the city. I mean, I had 15 driver guides working for me. Because I have only driver guides. I don't like having a driver and a tour guide. It's better if you do both because, well, for one thing, I could sell one more seat. And the difference between like 11 people in the van and 13, you double your profit. The last two people is pure gravy. And I had four full-time office people who were wonderful. I can't wait to rehire them. I try to keep them, you know, holding on, just hold on. Mm. So your, your tourism business started in... Well, it was in 1979, 42 years ago. But was there a time in the beginning that you were like, I'm going to keep doing this. This is working. This is something that you love. I always knew that I would probably do it for free, but I need the money. But I love it so much, you know, and I was able to find awesome people who felt the same way about Louisiana. I have the best tour guides. I mean, these guys, they know so much. They're like historians, you know? The fact that you know the material doesn't make you good at communicating. How did you find these amazing people? They find me <laughs> because I treat them better than other companies. They know their worth and they deserve it. When 9-11 happened, you had your business, but there was a little bit of a lull. Not a little bit. There was just about no more tourists. People were told not to travel. Our visitors come by plane. People were scared of flying. So how did you make money? Well, you just spend less. <laughs> I didn't have to lay off anyone. I wasn't as big mm -hmm. yet, so it wasn't as hard. Was this around the time that you had inherited your orchard? 2002. 2002? Yeah, 2002. My ex-husband put it in my name. I didn't know it was only in my name. Didn't realize it. I was too busy. But it was a good thing because he was trying to avoid things, problems with the IRS from a business he had that had failed. So he put it in my name, you know, to cover himself. And then later on when he left, well, all of a sudden the judge said, well, what are you fighting for custody of trees, orange trees? I've never seen people fight for custody of trees before. She was hilarious. She said, well, why are you arguing? This is only in your name, so don't argue. It's yours. I'm like, what? 
And so that's how I ended up with the property. In the meantime, he had planted hundreds of trees. So I ended up being with 632 citrus trees that I knew nothing how to take care of the trees. I already had another business, so I had to learn. I mean, these beautiful trees, they give these incredible fruit, right? Because it's right on the Mississippi River, rich silt, the best topsoil, alluvial soil, just the perfect balance of acidity for these trees. Apparently, that's what they need. And it was great. So I had to learn because all these fruit on the trees what do you do you can't let them rot that would go to waste my mother would kill me <laughs> can't waste anything so i started giving them to my friends at the yoga studio and my neighbors and then one of the neighbors said my husband's a chef i give him some of your red grapefruit he wants some for the restaurant and i'm like bling i could make money with this <laughs> And then he talked to the other chefs and everybody started wanting my citrus because it was such quality fruit. You know, the Maya lemons are just huge and everything's big. You know, all my kids were 10 pounds and all my fruits are huge. <laughs> so it's just, I can't grow anything little. And so I text all the chefs. I have a whole list, you know, organized and I text the chefs. Okay, if you would like this, this and that, let me know soon. And it's like an auction. The first one who texts me back gets it. And the other ones, oh, well. And I always sell out. Was there anything from your tourism business, like any skills that you acquired from there that helped you run this orchard? It's the same principle. You charge more, but you give so much more. Quality versus quantity. I don't have a whole lot. I don't take a whole lot of tourists. I don't sell a whole bunch of citrus, mm. but I charge premium because I give premium. So it's the same thing. It's a choice though, you know, as opposed oh, to yeah. growing and scaling really fast. Oh no, no, you don't want to get too big. Mm. No, I learned my first husband business went bankrupt and I had to declare bankruptcy because of that, because he grew too fast. He, he had too many stores and it just, it was too much. So it helps to be a control freak because <laughs> then you could manage the quality. If you're too big, you can't. We're trying to do that here on this podcast where we want to show that people who desire like to grow slow is just as successful, but... Oh yeah, more. Why do you think it's so much more? It gives me a lot of pride to think that people will get the best oranges. You know, I don't use any chemicals, no pesticides, no herbicides, uh, ladybugs and spiders and, and red ants are everywhere, but they help. It gives you a lot of pride when you come and you have this whole box of just amazing looking fruit. Well, with the tours, it's kind of the same. I'm not going to pull up with a big bus full of 56 tourists at one time. But the people I'll have, they'll really appreciate the fact that they can ask questions. A smaller group, there's so much more interaction. You adapt and you pay attention to what they are interested in. It's 2021 and a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things are the same, like the need to take care of yourself. I see you, neighbor, with your swole AF body. Kudos to you. But you know what? Physical health isn't your total health. You got to take care of that mental stuff, too. Everyone is at a different place in their mental health journey. For some, this process is really easy and natural. For others... It can be more difficult, but being able to talk it out is a great starting point for finding solutions, especially talking it out with someone like a therapist. And 
That's where BetterHelp comes in. They make finding the right therapist for you simple and affordable. And it only takes 48 hours to connect with a therapist. So our Girl Boss community gets 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash girlboss. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash girlboss. Oh, hey, Carly. How's it going? There's a little lag there. How's your Wi-Fi? It's a little slow. My router's from the late 90s, so. Get out. That's it. Is it not supposed to dial when you turn it on? That <laughs> Have you heard of Wi-Fi 6? I didn't know there was a Wi-Fi 5, so no. <laughs> Before, routers were supposed to deliver fast internet just for like your laptop and your smartphone. Right. But now we got consoles, we got tablets, we got 4K TVs, we got thermostats. Yes. All these smart devices are like fighting for bandwidth in your home today. And Netgear has Wi-Fi 6 products. They have improved coverage, fewer dead zones, and a more productive and less frustrating Wi-Fi experience. I feel like that should be in the constitution. Life, liberty, less frustrating Wi-Fi. You gotta go check out netgear.com slash business and then use the code GIRLBOSS10. Get yourself 10% off and 4X more Wi-Fi. Netgear.com slash business with code GIRLBOSS10 for 10% off. That's it. Puno, you always hook me up. <laughs> I love that we're just always talking about deals. I love a deal. <laughs> At least one levee has broken in New Orleans, leading to some localized flooding. But there could be far worse still to come as the storm surge and as the rainfall from... Katrina, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was bad. I grew up in Houston, so... Oh, so you know. You saw a lot of us come over there. I mean, if you're from the South, you for sure remember how devastating it was. Yeah, my oldest daughter was expecting her second baby. Her due date was just the week after that. So I had decided to leave, and I remember I had taken a lot of bottles of water with me, a couple of the shotguns. You just didn't know on the road. So I had a van and piled up all that I could for three days because you just brought things for three days. You never thought it was going to last longer. You would have to be far. And my husband had said he was going to stay which was crazy. So I got to Baton Rouge and settled in my son's dorm at LSU University. And then my husband called me, said, well, they really are saying I should leave. So now I want to leave, come and get me. So I had to go back all the way down. And the interstates were all one way. They were all closed and going one way, even the, you know, the other side because of counterflow. So I had to go the little roads and it helped that I knew the plantation drive because it was right along there and I knew all the little roads from my work. So that was so helpful. A few times the police and military said, lady, you're going the wrong way. And no, I've got to go get my husband. Now he wants to leave. So I came all the way back and got my husband. And then when I got there, my daughter says, I think I'm in labor. So we didn't know the hospital in Baton Rouge. She hadn't planned. She didn't have any baby things. And sure enough, she had her baby the night of Katrina. And that wonderful girl is now almost 16 years old. She's great. She's very happy. Oh, she's, her name is not Katrina. <laughs> I remember going to Walmart in Baton Rouge and 
fighting with some other lady for a little crib. And there were a lot of people in the Walmart parking lot in Baton Rouge who were just there, had no place to stay, no hotel rooms. And I remember when you were in the Walmart, you could tell who thought they were going to be staying there a long time and who didn't realize they were going to be stuck a long time because some bought plastic silver and some bought real silver. You know, and that kind of told you who thought they were just there temporarily or not. That was just so eerie. We were there a long time. And when I was finally able to come back home, part of my roof was gone and it had rained in the house. So there was lots of beautiful blue cheese mold on the walls. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, but everybody was like that. And we didn't flood. We were lucky. It just wow. rained in the house. No it flood here because I'm on the river and the river is 19 feet above sea level when you're on the riverside. It was a little scary. So the fridge was full of rottening stuff. So we put everything in big bags and buried them because there was no garbage pickup. And you were on your own. There was no 911. You know, you're on your own. How long were you on your own for? Mm. Well, we weren't allowed to stay. We could just come and check things out and leave because there was mm. no water, no mm -hmm. electricity, and you couldn't get gas for the generator. It was probably about a month and a half, six weeks in the dorm, <laughs> in the student dorm with a two-year-old. And, and of course, you know, zero business, but my vans were okay. I think then I had like three or four vans. The gas had been siphoned out, but that's okay. Somebody must have needed it. So your your vans are okay. Yeah, but there's no tourists. No tourists there's, again. There's no tourists because they think New Orleans is completely flooded. They don't realize the French Quarter is built on the riverside. It's high ground. So mm -hmm. the French Quarter never flooded. The Garden District didn't flood. There was All the plantations were great. The swamps were great. They always flooded. Mm -hmm. So you could definitely do tourists. But all people wanted was, we want to see the levee breaches. Can you take us? I'm like, you want to see the disaster? Yep, that's what we want to see. What we saw on TV is what we want to see, the levee breaches. So I started to try to get to all the places where there had been breaches, 13 places. People needed to understand it's not a natural disaster. It was a human disaster. The government did it. You know, the, the levees were not breaching. What breached was the flood walls that were not built at the proper depth. So I found things in the local newspaper, the Times-Picayune, and I cut them out and I went to Kinko and made copies so everybody would see what exactly happened. And I almost felt like I was a journalist, like I had to bear witness, I had to tell people, this is what happened, this is why it happened, and this is why we should rebuild a certain way, not the way it was built wrong. So I started the Katrina tour to explain that to people. And then on December 27, 2005, I had my pen and ink drawing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which was really ugly. My father was coming, my mom and dad were coming from France, they were at Houston Airport, and my dad called me and said, your picture's on the cover page of the Wall Street Journal, in, in French, he tells me. And I'm like, Dad, are you sure? They don't have pictures. Well, you're drawing. Wow, really? What do they say? Lady does disaster tour. Oh. Well, it doesn't sound very nice, but okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's better if they talk about it. 
And then they all started, you know, because they all talked to each other. So the USA Today and all the interviews and the local TV channels. Right after the storm, the tours were a way to spread awareness. But during those first years, there was controversy. Not everyone wanted the tours to go into their neighborhood. And then Connie Chung and Maury Poffich, she wanted to interview me. And she said, how do you dare? take advantage of people's misery. Do you realize you're profiting from all these people's all terrible situation? You are just making money from this. Sensationalism, you know? And before I could explain the importance of people understanding the real story of why 1,800 people died in New Orleans and how the government built these sheet metal piling at the improper depth under the flood walls, and it was their fault that these things broke. You know, and it wasn't the earthen levees. It was the flood walls, and this is where it happened. Before I could explain that, that I needed to bring awareness so people would know all over the country, and, and political people could help and send funds for New Orleans. And yeah. She cut my mic off. Oh, my God. And I couldn't talk. Oh, I was so angry. <laughs> I had to tell people the true story. Yeah. Everybody thought it was one neighborhood, the Ninth Ward. No, it was 13 places. All Katrina did not discriminate. The only people category that was hurt really a lot more than others was the older people and people with their pets. So it had to be told what really happened and, and whose fault it was. And it should be known. So they don't do it again and we watch them. Yeah. I had to give the Katrina tour for years and it's like, when are they going to want to see beautiful things, the, the stories, the history, the garden district, the swamps? When will people want to see beauty again? I mean, you had to keep your nose in the mess for years, just go over and over the real destroyed part of the city, you know? It's sad. I mean, one of my tour guides, she's gone now, poor thing, but she, she lost her house in the oil spill in Chalmette. So she was flooded, lost her home, and then she could never go back home because of the Murphy oil spill in her neighborhood. When Katrina moved some of the tanks and the fuel invaded her whole neighborhood, you know, and she had to give the Katrina tour and she would pass in front of the remains of her house and show people, well, this is where I used to live and I'll never be able to go back. And I asked them, do you girls want to keep doing this? I mean, it's got to be so hard on you. I didn't lose my house. And they said, no, this is the only thing we have left from before. Mm. You can't take that away. Don't stop. We have nothing left of our normal life from before but this work. So don't stop. So it was like my responsibility to keep it going. So at least they could still have their job. Your guests that were going on these tours, were you able to show them the truth? Uh, that's all I did, nonstop. Absolutely. And, and I would always end the tour by, please tell your congressman, please tell your senator, you know, we need help. New Orleans needs this to be fixed, not just a Band-Aid fix to fix where the walls busted. The whole thing needs to be fixed. It's built everywhere at the wrong depth, not just where it broke. Mm -hmm. You can't just do a Band-Aid, so please tell your congressman. And some people did. So we tried to play a part in awareness. I mean, that was a mission, kind of. Yeah. And I think you do it also from such a good place that you can re be reminded that you right. are part of helping local government make better decisions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Local and federal. You've really gone through so much with 9-11 and then Katrina. And now we are in the most recent one, 
COVID. Yeah, but it's getting better. And, and right now I'm getting the passionate people. A lot of people in the health, traveling nurses, we have one on tour today, doctors who finally can get a break. They haven't had a break since one year at least. And when they come here and you have them, you're like, I have one day. And my goal is to make them happy and think about interesting things and history and the beauty of Louisiana for one day so they don't think about all their issues. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, when you see how relaxed they are and sometimes they take a little nap on the way back and that's a good job oh yeah and it's not just like a good day it's an experience yeah for the rest of their life oh yeah my father-in-law was cajun and he told me something that i always remembered that helped me oh that means don't drop your potato like You've got a, a, a sweet potato in your hand and it's burning, right? It's, so you got to juggle and keep it up just until it cools off. Just <laughs> juggle. Don't drop it. You know, and then when it's cooler, you can eat it. Mm. And you'll not be burning anymore. Just don't drop your potato. That means hang in there, you know, in Cajun talk. And I love that. Oh. That's what we do. I feel like that's kind of the lesson that you always have to go back to, just dealing with all of these unexpected events. Right, right, right. Find a way to survive, yeah. Yeah. And New Orleanians are perfect at that, you know? We've had epidemics in Louisiana, God, since the first Europeans came. I mean, yellow fever was terrible. You didn't know how to fight it for two centuries. Nobody knew how did you get yellow fever until 1905. and. So, you know, we have hard enough time fighting COVID when we know what causes it. They didn't know what caused yellow fever. So people were dying. Uh, people have always had to fight troubling things like that down here. In what ways is COVID different from what you've previously gone through? Everybody was involved. Everybody. 9-11 was, America was involved, you know. Uh, Katrina was just New Orleans. But this time it's everyone. That's how it's different. It's everyone. So you just have to be one of the first ones back. You just do one step at a time. It's like, you know, they always say the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't like that. I like to think that it's stairs you go up, mm -hmm. but you only get the light like on your forehead, like a miner, to see one or two steps ahead. You don't want to look at five steps. It's too hard. Just one step at a time. You know, yeah. it was the same with the, uh, cancer. I had the breast cancer. You just do one surgery at a time. Don't think too far because you'll be overwhelmed. Yeah. Just two steps at a time. Do you have any advice for anybody who wants to start a travel or tourism business? I think customer service is key. If you're very responsive to people, whether emails, phone calls, text, just don't wait. People are, they want everything right now. And yeah. it's so important to respond quickly to people. And then after the sale too, I send them their pictures. They always like that. You find something they like and you just keep doing it. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. little things, little present or offer a discount in the future for next door. And I always make sure I spell their names correctly. People really appreciate that, especially when they have names that are unique. Spell it exactly. You know, anything special that you picked up, I make a note of it so I remember. And I say it again when I send them a message, come back with your kids one day or just something personal. And they feel like you really paid attention to them and you did. Yeah. So here at Girl Boss, we like to explore what success means to our guests. 
It's not about money. Feel useful, feeling useful. Like what I was telling you about people who've given so much, you know, health workers, emergency people who finally get a day off. And at the end of one day when you've had them on a tour and they're relaxed and they don't think about their worries, that's success. Don't tell anybody, but I would do it for free because <laughs> it makes me so happy, you know? It makes you happy to make people happy, basically. Everybody's the same way. So to be useful, I will be able to give at least a few of my people their job back soon. I really see the bookings are trickling in more than they've been. It's a better trickle. And also the people that depend on me to bring them work, like the boat captain on the airboat, the different destination and museums we bring people to. Mm -hmm. If I stop, then they won't have that. So I can't stop. Yeah. Uh, my dad always wanted me to retire, but shoot, he didn't retire till he passed. When he was 86, he still worked. So he had no business telling me to retire. I'm not going to retire. What, what would I do? There's too much to do, and I have to do it. And I'm good at it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think women are so much more powerful because they're flexible. We're flexible. I always tell people it's like a cypress tree, you know, because we talk about cypress trees a lot when we go to the swamps. They're amazing. So the wood is rot-proof practically. It's fire retardant. When lightning will strike the top of a cypress tree, it won't burn all the way down. It just burns the top, and then stays alive. Cypress, in French, la cyprière, it's feminine because it's flexible and it's soft, but it's so durable. Ooh. And I think that's what women are, like a cypress tree. It bends, it doesn't break. None of the cypress trees broke at any hurricane. They bend and they come back up, you know, and they find their vertical. Because if they're bent by the storm, and I have one of them like that over there, it'll stay bent because it was really hurt by the storm. But all the branches find their vertical. We have to find our vertical and we do that. And you could still be flexible and strong. That's because they're feminine. Yeah. I love that about Cyprus. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Isabel. You are so beautiful. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I thank you so much for talking about everything that you did. I've, I've learned so much. I've been reminded so much about the hot potato and that you need to just keep in your hand. Yeah, just keep dribbling. It's too hot to hold, so just hold on. There's got to be something in the soil of New Orleans because Isabel is a strong woman and she reminded me how strong women are. Who wants to go to New Orleans and take one of Isabel's tours? I see you in the car raising your hand. High five. Isabel also reminded me of the importance of quality over quantity. Her ability to provide the absolute best to her customers as well as to her employees. I know she wanted to keep this on the DL, but come on, knowing that she's so passionate about what she does that she would just do it for free, that just adds way more value to what she has to offer. All of us have to deal with the unexpected in some form or another, and none of us can predict what the future is going to bring. Let's just take it one day at a time, one step at a time, and doing what you love to do. Until next week. Keep holding on to those hot potatoes.
If you're subscribed to our newsletter, Girl Boss Daily, you might have noticed that we've been answering questions from the community. You can send your questions to advice at girlboss.com. And uh, if you record a 30 second voice note, you might even hear yourself on the podcast. If you want to learn more about Tours by Isabel or Isabel's Orange Orchard, you can check out the links on girlboss.com in the show notes. And if you've got some feedback, let us know, podcast at girlboss.com. And if you love it, the best way you can support Girlboss is by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with your friends, and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. I promise, it really makes the team smile. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio, original music composed by Nija, and this episode was produced by Carly Pryor with help from Christopher Olin and Juliana Clark. Our editorial director is Clemence. Special thanks to Taylor, Nora Agency, Kaylee, and America. This is Puno, signing off. <laughs>